If you have your Bible today, if you would take it and turn to Romans chapter 12. We've been going through the book of Romans for a little while, and we're going to keep going through the next verses that God has put in front of us today. Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 14 through 18 today and set our hearts on those verses to meditate on the Word of God and ask Him to use those to open our eyes to the truth that He has, to submit our hearts to what's here, to transform us by His grace with these instructions. If you don't have a Bible, you can get one of the Black Pew Bibles on the end of each pew. It's on page 948 in that Bible. And you can keep that for yourself if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible uh, of your own. But let's read these verses. Romans 12, verse 14 through 18. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So we know where we are in the scripture. Romans 12 has come after Romans 1 through 11, which is one of the grandest places in scripture where you can go to see a beautiful description of the doctrines of the grace of God toward us in Jesus Christ, that we were all, every single one of us, all humanity, lost and hopeless in our sins, but that God had mercy on sinners in Jesus who came to be the propitiation for our sins, that he freely offers us that salvation by his grace, that even for us who have, have received that grace, that we walk in that grace even though there's sin that would buffet us, even though there is suffering that would bother us, that uh, there is no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He showed us some of the mysteries of the fact that he is elected from before the foundation of the world, who it is that he would save, and even gone to the point of saying that he has actively uh, condemned those who would not be saved, and given us to, to contemplate on the mysteries of his plans for the Jewish people, as, as, as well as the Gentiles and bringing them into one nation. All of these great things, but all of this put together, you can sum it up by, by saying, for from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. These grand, beautiful truths that are wrapped up in that way at the end of Romans 11. And then I'll just remind you where he led into in Romans 12 it begins to say, okay, if these things are true of you as a believer in Christ, if this is the God who is your God and you've been saved by his grace and united to this Christ, then do something. Here's what you do with it. Here's some practicalities of what it looks like to live out who you already are in Christ. And he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And I want to keep that phrase in mind today, by the mercies of God, because these verses that we just read verses 14 through 18, are a call for us to be merciful. And we're to remember up front, that's because God has first been merciful to us. And he asks us to show that same kind of mercy to others. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I'll submit to you today, that to obey the verses that we just read, verses 14 through 18, is going to require the transformation of our minds. 
These are things that do not come naturally to human beings and things that we need the help and the grace of the Holy Spirit for so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, do you know where our hearts tend to show their true colors the most? It's when we're sinned against. Anybody in here ever been sinned against? Of course we have, and of course we will. It's, it, it ought to be obvious to us as, as believers, hey, we, are, we came into this world as sinners, in a world of sinners, there's going to be a lot of sin. There, there's going to be times when we realize that we've sinned against others. There's going to be probably more times it's easier to recognize when others have sinned against us, and it doesn't just stop because you became a Christian. Everybody doesn't just say, okay, well, that guy's great, so we're not going to do anything to him now. It also doesn't stop just because you got married and you have a Christian marriage. You realize you're still sinners married to each other. There's going to be things happening there. You have children. They come into the world sinners. don't have to teach them how to lie to you, do you? When we get sinned against, especially when we start to feel the seriousness of sin against us, is when we are really tested. What does your heart look like? How do you respond when you have not been treated as you ought to be treated? It's a tough thing to swallow that we're in this place where we have all of these human interactions that are not just opportunities for us to to bless and to be blessed, but also opportunities for people to sin against us. And that's what sometimes makes people tempted to quit their jobs working with humans and to go work with animals instead. But what we've got to do is we have to not follow the world's lead and not follow the lead of our sinful flesh in how to go about those human relationships and how to respond when we have that feeling start to well up in our hearts of, I need justice. I have been sinned against. I ought not be treated this way. Well, all of these verses, they don't quite deal explicitly with justice in every single one of them but they deal with the fact that we need to handle those relationships and those interactions with other human beings in a way that's kind of supernatural. It doesn't just come naturally. It has to be done by the transformation of the Holy Spirit, the renewal of our minds in Christ. Every instruction in these verses goes counter to the fleshly desires of sin. And so they can only be accomplished with a mind that's set on the Holy Spirit. Also, every single one of these instructions displays perfectly Christ's attitude as sinners toward us. So, as as he, the holy, perfect Jesus, has loved us, who were sinners against him, enemies in our sin against God, and redeemed us, he's called us to be imitators. We, We prayed through part of the Sermon on the Mount from the book of of Luke, but I want to read you some of it from the book of Matthew because a lot of what Paul is saying here is something of a, a condensed and repeated version of what Jesus says to us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Matthew five thirty eight, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now I want to tell you how Jesus ends up that paragraph. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, sometimes when you get to that, when you get to Matthew 5, 48, you just say, I give up. Well, in a way, it is a recognition right there. This is extremely hard. And this is not something that we are going to get nailed down in this life. This is difficult. You're not going to be perfected. In your soul, you're not going to be rid of all of the fleshly tendencies that you have until one day you're standing face to face with Christ and you'll be like him because you'll see him as he is. But until then, we have this in front of us, both to convict us of our sin, to drive us to the grace of Jesus, and to challenge us to move forward in that kind of holiness and perfection that Jesus has taught us there. All of this applies to all of our relationships. Husbands, it applies to the way that you treat your wives. Wives, it applies to the way that you treat your husbands. You know what? Even if you've got a godly husband and a godly wife together, they're both sinners. And that's not always the case, sadly, either, that they're both godly. Children, it applies to how you relate to your parents. Parents, it applies to how you relate to your children. Brothers, sisters, it applies how you relate to each other. Your other relatives beyond just that immediate family too. Men, I got to tell you, men, it applies to us. These instructions apply to us on first hearing. A lot of men will dismiss instructions like this as sissy. And they're not. Men, we, we don't need to uh, absorb what the unbelieving world would tell us about manhood. Obviously, we, we shouldn't absorb what leftists would tell us with twisted gender ideology. But we also shouldn't absorb what the irreligious right would tell us about manhood, which is not really biblical manhood, but just sort of childishness with muscles and facial hair added to it. What we've got to do is we've got to say, hey, what this looks like to be a follower of God, a man or a woman built up in the full image of Christ is to do these hard things that our flesh doesn't want to do, showing the kind of mercy and love that God has shown to us. It's amazing. This applies to our church relationships. It applies to our work relationships. It applies to relationships with far-off people, pretty much all of our relationships. The, the verses that we were in last week that came just before this were verses that had to do very specifically with the relationships that we have with one another in our church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And these instructions that we've come to now have to do with our church, but also with all kinds of other people that we would interact with, including those who hate the gospel and want to persecute us because of it. So as we go through each of these things, they're going to convict us of our sin. They're going to tell us, hey, wait a second, there's something in my flesh that doesn't want to do this. They're going to lead us to the forgiveness that we have in Christ because he's shown us this mercy. And they're going to point us to obedience. Because that's what God's rules do. They do those three things. They convict us of sin. They point us to the grace of Jesus. They ought to hold back our evil. And they ought to 
uh, lead us to what is good. But let's look at verse 14. Verse 14 says the first instruction here, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Well, that's hard. Now, when it says those who persecute you, just remember that this can come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Now, normally when we hear the word persecute, we think of places like North Korea, where persecution is in full swing. In North Korea, there are people who are executed for being found to possess a written-down Bible verse. I mean, that is serious persecution. You've got that, then you've got all the way down to other forms of it, where maybe there's some country where being a Christian is legal, but converting from Hinduism to Christianity is illegal, or from Islam to Christianity is illegal, or might get you kicked out of your family and your home, might make you lose all of your possessions, even though they say, yeah, sure, you can be a Christian. And you get down to places like, I was just reading an update from one of our fellow fire churches in Italy, and they were uh, telling about another evangelical church in Rome that was being planted and is being taken all the way to the Supreme Court uh, because they applied for tax-exempt status as a church, but their church doesn't look like a Catholic church on the inside. and So they're being denied it. So a little bit, little bit, not quite being executed for the faith, but obviously opposition to the faith. And all the way down to where maybe it's not even any of those formal things, but you just go to work. And the fact that you are going to say something about the goodness of God or the providence of God, or it's going to be known that you're a Christian, or it's going to be known that you stand for biblical morality, is going to get you treated differently. Maybe get you passed over for a promotion that you deserved, or all kinds of other things. This could come down to all kinds of stuff. Even within families, it could get you ridiculed at your family barbecue because you're the Bible thumper. Well, you know what this says? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, do you know where a lot of our minds will go when we hear that? A lot of our minds will go to, I want to find the exception to this rule. (laughs) Surely my situation is the situation that God has written all of those imprecatory psalms about. And I get to, I, in my situation is the one where I get to pray that, that God would cast that person into hell five minutes from now instead of me having to endure this. You know what? Rather than looking to, to try to figure out, is my, is my situation the exception? Do I get to get out of this? Why don't we just look and see, hey, here's the biblical principle. Here's the rule. Bless those who persecute you. And by bless them... What does that mean? It's a term that really is talking about the blessings of God. It's talking about asking God to give the blessings that only he can give. Probably the the greatest example of this of all time was when Jesus was being nailed to the cross. And you know what he said? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Isn't that amazing? God the Son prays to God the Father for the blessings of forgiveness and salvation to come to the people who are physically crucifying the Lord of glory. That's amazing. That's the kind of thing that it's talking about. When we, when we see those who would oppose us for holding to the gospel, the instruction of Scripture here is, go to God and ask God to save them in the way that he has saved you. Ask God to give them 
the blessings that only he can give, the, the blessings of eternal salvation. It says in Ephesians 1 that we have been given every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. You didn't deserve that. And he's saying, if you're persecuted, pray that God would give that to the person who doesn't deserve it, to the person who is opposing you. He says, bless and do not curse them. He has to say, do not curse them, because that's going to be where our flesh goes. How can I curse them? How can I get back at them? How can I make this a situation of war? When instead God says, Pray that God would be the great warrior who would overcome their hearts with his grace. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. It's always hard to navigate, how do I handle somebody else's sin against me? How do you do that? And often it's not just sin against you, it's sometimes it's a trap that they're setting. You know sometimes people will sin against you in a way where they're trolling you? They're just, they don't care that they've sinned, but they're trying to get you, the goody little Christian, to sin back. And that's spoken of in the Psalms, like Psalm 35 that Rick read for us at the beginning of the service. It says, for without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. It's a trap. Don't fall into the trap. Bless. Do not curse. In our flesh, we, we want to curse those who curse us. We're tempted to take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we're going to get to that even more next week where it says in verse 19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And I'll leave it until next week as well. But we just need to know when our flesh takes us there, God says, bless, do not curse. Even sometimes, sometimes we may manage not to, not to do those kinds of cursing revenge type things in our actions, but with our words, it comes out. Maybe it doesn't come out directly to the person who's just sinned against us, but maybe it comes out once we've shut the door of our car. Maybe you manage to keep it inside your mouth, but you've still got it welling up in your heart. That cursing. Well, praise God that he can forgive us for that. He can forgive you for the ways that you have cursed those who curse you. For the ways that you have not blessed those who have persecuted you. And if you feel it in your heart, I hate that when I am sinned against that this is where my flesh goes. You might say together with Paul like he did in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you might need these next words. Thanks be to God through Christ our Lord. He will. He will deliver us. Jesus, when he had disciples that he had sent out to make other disciples to go and to preach the gospel, it says that, that he sent these messengers ahead of him who entered a village of the Samaritans. This is Luke 9, 52. That they had gone to make preparations for Jesus, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem, which has to do with the difference between the Samaritans and the Jews that I won't get into right now, but they didn't receive them. And it says when his disciples James and John saw it, they're called the sons of thunder sometimes. When they saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And you know what Jesus did? It says he turned and rebuked them, saying, that's not what my mission is about. My mission is to save. 
Now, one day he will come in person, and he's actually told us to pray in the, the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. And there is the destruction of the wicked built into that. But that's not our mission, and that wasn't Jesus' mission as he came. It's not to call down fire from heaven to consume them. It's to bless and not curse. Jesus prayed a, a blessing upon those who crucified him. It's amazing that he had that compassion. And if he hadn't had that compassion, I'd be doomed. You know, it was my sin. If you want to know why did the Lord of glory get nailed to a cross, you can just think of Pastor Daniel. It was his fault. It was my sin that put him there. And it was yours too, believer. But just remember, he blessed those who cursed him. He blessed. He also gave us that example. I, the very first person who was persecuted to the point of death, who was the first martyr of Christianity, was named Stephen. And it says in Acts 7.59 that as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see that example right there, following in the footsteps of Jesus, even being stoned to death for his faith, he prayed a prayer of blessing upon his murderers. Mm, what a challenge. In 1 Corinthians 4.12, it says, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Second thing that we're told to do here in these verses is that when others have highs and lows, that we're to have sympathy. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now, different people may, in their personalities, their natural tendencies, they may approach this, this verse differently. Some people are just kind of naturally drawn toward sympathizing with others, toward saying, Hey, somebody's got something great going on, I'm happy about it. Somebody's got something sad going on, I'm going to cry about it. Some people may have personalities where you're only drawn to the rejoicing. Some people may have personalities where you're only drawn to the weeping. Some people may have personalities where you're not drawn to anything. You just kind of are stone cold in the face of everything that's in front of you. But listen to this, too. This doesn't just apply to those people that we're at peace with. Those, this applies to those who might persecute us, who might curse us. This has to do not just with saying, hey, when, when somebody I love has something great going on, I should be happy about it. That is true. And it doesn't just mean when somebody I love has something sad, I should be sad with them. That is true, too. It says that. But it also means... When you look at those that in your flesh, you wish that good things would not happen to them, still rejoice with those who rejoice. When you look at those that you wish that bad things would happen to them, that's where your sinful flesh goes. Don't rejoice at their calamity. Weep with those who weep. One of the ways that that comes into play sometimes is, is when we as, you know, we, we seek to be biblically faithful. We think, seek to be theologically and biblically sound at this church. And, and, and sometimes you'll hear about, uh, you know, a, a prosperity gospel preacher or some other kind of a false teacher out there who, who falls into something like adultery or, or has some other kind of destructive thing happen. And, and there, is, 
sometimes just an ugly tendency among those who claim to be biblically faithful to want to jump up and say, aha, I told you so. And to rejoice over the calamity of that man and the people that he had led. And this says, no, weep with those who weep. There, there is all kinds of ways that we can do this. A well-meaning church member one time got to church and, and told me about how somebody had cut them off in traffic. And then they watched that person get pulled over. And how much joy that brought them. And that, that was the trip to church. <laughs> uh, well, this says, hey, even in that situation, it, it, it's not our position to gloat. Just If we were considering, what do we deserve? If we're looking for people to get their comeuppance, what, what would be our comeuppance? Well, it would be hell for all eternity, for our sins. But he has shown us mercy. Some examples of doing exactly what it says to do here that are in Scripture. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Philippians 2.17 says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. You hear what Paul is saying to the Philippians there? He's saying, even if... I give myself to the ministry to the point where I am killed for it and nobody appreciates it and everybody looks at me and says, boy, we sure are glad we're not like that guy. Even if that's what happens, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. I want to see you progressing in your faith and rejoicing over it. Despite not being shown appreciation. He says, and then there's weeping with those who weep. Jesus, when his friend Lazarus had died, in John 11, verse 32, it says, Mary came, this was Lazarus' sister, came to where Jesus was and saw him. And she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She was acknowledging that Jesus truly could have healed him and kept him from dying. But when Jesus saw her weeping, and all the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit, that's in his human soul, and was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And we have one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. You might think to yourself, why why would Jesus weep? He knows that in a few minutes he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that he holds the power of eternity. He, he knows that when, uh, when, when a believer in Christ dies, that blessed in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. He, he knows that when, when the righteous go to the grave, that they rest from all their troubles. He knows all of these things. But what does he do? He weeps with those who weep. He sees that it is genuinely a result of the curse and it is pain when someone dies and he weeps. We can say two things at the same time about death as believers. We can say on the one hand, if a believer has gone to heaven, this is a good thing. And we can weep that it has happened because Jesus did We can hold those together, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. And we're commanded to. 
It's not just a suggestion, it's a command to do this. Also, another thing that goes against the desires of our our sinful flesh is in verse 16. The next thing, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You know what the world does? The world jockeys for position. The world wants to show exactly where everybody ought to be considered in the lineup of just how smart you are, just how accomplished you are, just how athletic you are, just how rich you are. Even get this, just how holy you are. Everybody wants to say in that sinful flesh, boy, this is where I go and I want to be recognized for the position that I really do deserve. But this says, no, instead of that, live in harmony with one another. Now this especially, when you see the one another's, he's kind of getting around to, this would first and foremost apply to our relationships in churches. With this one another, that's, a, that's kind of a, ought to be a bell in our heads. Hey, this is how church people ought to relate to each other. This is how Christians ought to relate to each other, to live in harmony with one another. And it's the kind of harmony where he's saying, have the same mind, get in the same mindset with each other. It's the same words that's used in Philippians 2.3 when he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here, here's the phrase, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. If we want to have the same kind of thinking and harmony with one another, the way the Bible says to do that is start thinking about others the way that Jesus thought about you, which was exhibited in the fact that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So have that mind, not of rivalry, but of harmony. He says in in Romans 15, which we're going to get to eventually. It says, verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. What's that harmony going to look like when it's played out in the church? In accord with Christ Jesus, that here's what it would look like. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You hear that? He says, as a church, here's what it's going to look like when, when you're, you have that way of thinking, that, that you're going to get your minds off of yourselves, and that we're going to start looking more and more to glorifying God together. And as we glorify God, to welcome one another for the glory of God. Mm, that's beautiful. It's harmony. When he says, though, be harm, live in harmony with one another, he goes to a negative command, do not be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Don't be conceited. Don't be condescending toward people. And there's two ways in particular that the Bible brings this up over and over, that we, as human beings in the flesh, are tempted to be conceited, and those are having to do with wisdom and with riches, with how smart you are and with how much you have. Proverbs 26, verse 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Don't be wise in your own eyes. 1 Timothy six seventeen says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. You may be tempted for various reasons to say, hey, I kind of know my place around here because I'm the smart guy. I kind of know my place around here because I'm 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 the one who can fund all this stuff. He says, don't think that way. Don't put yourself in that position of rivalry or conceit. Instead, I'm going to just read it again, Philippians 2, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others, just like Jesus did for us. He says, instead of doing that, associate with the lowly. Maybe that's something you could seek out. Now, when you, when you go up to somebody, don't tell them, I'm talking to you because you are lowly. That's condescension. That's being haughty. But he does tell us, actively seek this out. Help, help to destroy your pride by getting to know and love people that you might have been tempted to be haughty, arrogant toward, and serve them, love them. That would apply not just within the church, but within any, any kind of relationship that God might give us. And then verse 17 tells us that when others do evil to you, that we're to do what is honorable. This is very closely related to verse 14 and, and verse 19 as well. But he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Boy, we say this, this verse a lot in our house with our kids. You know, I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world to say, I am justified in what I did to him because of what he did to me. I have been paid evil, and therefore, I have a righteous indignation that allows me to repay that evil. And you may say to yourself, well, yeah, you see that in kids. We don't just see that in kids. That's all over the place all the time. In fact, in many ways, it's celebrated in our culture. It's celebrated on the left, it's celebrated on the right, it's celebrated in people who don't care what the left and the right are, it's celebrated in sinful hearts to say, evil has been done to me, I will repay evil. This is, even sometimes you might go see a movie, and that's like the big, the big great moment at the end where a whole theater roars and cheers because evil has been repaid. Don't think that way. That is fleshly. That is worldly. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but instead, here's what you're to do. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. This is not new in the New Testament, by the way. This not repaying evil for evil. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Which is pretty identical to verse 19, but again, that's next week, so I'll save it. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You hear that? He's not just talking about within the church. He says, and to everyone. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And he goes on to describe that that's exactly what Jesus did for us in saving us from our sins. What did Jesus do? When he reviled, 1 Peter 2, 23, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I am so thankful that Jesus did not repay my evil for evil. That when Jesus saw my evil, even seeing it thousands of years in advance, his response was to go to the cross and to die for my evil out of love. That is honorable. That's the only hope that we have of forgiveness and eternal life is that Jesus has done that for us. And the Bible calls us to have that attitude toward others. You know, you're not going to die for their sins. That's only possible for Jesus. But we're called not to repay evil for evil, but to do what is honorable. He says in 2 Corinthians 8.21, We aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Obviously, pleasing the Lord is first and foremost. But if you say to yourself, I must be pleasing the Lord because everybody in my life thinks I'm a jerk, that is not correct. You, You need to search your heart a little bit. Or 2 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that's among the unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, now get that, even when you are maintaining an honorable conduct, you'll still get called an evildoer. But, he says, but when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying, continuing to do what is honorable in the sight of all is even part of the means by which God would plan to save people out of their sins and be glorifiers of God on the day when Jesus comes back. It's it's all beautiful. Not only that, but men, if you think to yourself, maybe one day God would have me to serve as an elder of this church or as an elder of another church or to go into full-time pastoral ministry, one of the requirements for that in 1 Timothy 3.7 is that moreover he, an elder, must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. In other words, he must be someone who is known for not repaying evil for evil, but for doing what is honorable in the sight of all. Women, that doesn't exempt you from the command we are, we are all called to do what is honorable, to be as, as much as possible, so far as it depends on us, as it's about to say, to be well thought of by outsiders because we're doing what honors God in the sight of men. Men, do you know where your strength is going to shine most brightly? Your strength is not going to shine most brightly when you get revenge. When you pay back evil for evil, that's the childish thing to do. The hard, honorable thing to do, your strength as a Christian man will shine through most brightly when you resist the temptation to repay evil for evil and when you're instead determined to do what is right and honorable and to bless and not to curse. Finally, verse 18 tells us that when others are not at peace with us, that we need to seek peace with them. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And when it says with all, it's talking about everybody that God might put in your life. 
Now we have to say, there's an if at the beginning. If possible. You know what's built into that statement? It's not always possible. And why is it not always possible? So far as it depends on you. Because when there's peace between people, there has to be peace between both of them. And so it's not always possible. Because you you cannot have peace with somebody who is refusing to be at peace with you. And even if we forgive certain sins in our hearts, those who will not repent of those sins may, by their lack of repentance, put even us and our families in danger. I mean, there's all kinds of situations like that. And so I don't, but I don't want to go too far into the possible exceptions. I said that already. Our hearts tend to go toward the exceptions. What about my circumstance? Instead, let's just say, what is the rule here that we need to tune our hearts to? What we need to tune our hearts to is, hey, a lot of this depends on me. And to whatever degree it depends on me, my responsibility is to seek peace and pursue it. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It says in Psalm 34, verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. And as I just said, seek peace and pursue it. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hmm. You know what Jesus told, this is another part of the Sermon on the Mount that I, I didn't think to copy into my notes right now, but Jesus says that if you're, if you're in the temple about to offer your sacrifice on the altar, meaning you're about to do your act of formal worship, and you remember that your brother has something against you, what do you do? You leave your sacrifice at the altar, and you go to your brother. And you seek to make peace. I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he says to do. We shouldn't just say to ourselves, well, I'm not at peace with people, but so much for that. Who cares? I'm going to church. I'll show them. Now, that ought to also tell you part of, uh, part of the command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remembering means, hey, throughout your week, keep in mind, I want to have things right as much as I can before I come to that formal time of worship on Sunday. But I don't want to go too far off from from what I had had planned to say, but we need to know that, that even something like taking the Lord's Supper, that, that might be an example where you would say, hey, next week, first Sunday in August, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And maybe I need to seek peace and pursue, pursue peace with someone, with my brother, between now and then. Now, that's only as much as possible so far as it depends on you. If they won't be at peace with you, that does not bar you from taking the Lord's Supper. I'll put it that way, okay? But we need to take these things seriously and to be thankful that Jesus made peace with us. You know what we were not doing when we were in our lost and sinful state? We were not trying to be at peace with God. We were not seeking peace and pursuing it with God. The Bible describes us in Romans chapter 5 as having been God's enemies in those days. As having been those who do not seek God. As those who do not submit to God's righteousness and cannot. 
But you know what Jesus has done in the cross? Proactively, self-sacrificially, it says in 1 Corinthians 1, or excuse me, Colossians 1.20, that he made peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Thank God he has done that for us. Trust in Jesus to do that for you, to make peace with God by the blood of the cross for you. And he also calls us to have peace with others. Another, another aspect of peace that he bought in the crosses is he bought peace for every believer everywhere, regardless of whether they are Jew, Gentile, or from any other background. It says in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Praise God for that. And he's called us to follow his example in seeking peace and pursuing it, even if it costs something to us, because it costs him everything in making peace with us. Guys, all of these things, they go so contrary to our flesh. They call us and show us, hey, these are hard, and we have failed in these And I hope that you have been convicted of sin in some way by various of these commands. But I hope that because you've been convicted of your sin, that you'll run to the grace of Jesus. Be forgiven and seek to follow his example in not going about those human relationships in a fleshly way, but in a self-sacrificial, loving way, the same way that God has loved us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what Jesus has done for us. While we were still enemies at the right time, Christ died for us. Lord, I thank you uh, that you, have, um, you have, have blessed us and not cursed us as believers. I thank you that you rejoice with us and weep with us. Lord, we thank you that you, you have made harmony with us, that Christ has not been haughty toward us, but has associated with the lowly and even given himself up to death for us that he hasn't been wise in his own sight toward us, even though he obviously is infinitely wise, that he has condescended to our thinking to help us to understand and to see the truth. I thank you that, that Jesus hasn't repaid us evil for evil. I thank you that he's done the honorable thing in every situation all the way to the cross. And God, I thank you that as it depended on you, which it did, that that you have been peaceful toward us and made peace with us by the blood of the cross. In all of these things, we ask for your help. We ask for your forgiveness where we have not done these commands. We thank you for doing them toward us in your mercy and grace, and we pray that you'd help help us to do them toward others. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.